<laughs> Good morning. The Lord be with you. The title of today's message is this, A New Exodus from Religion to a Kingdom of Glory. Did you notice that in your worship order or on the weekly e-bulletin? No one? All right. How, how many of you know what I mean by this title? That's what I thought. So my goal today is simple. My goal is for you to leave the service knowing what this title means and then getting on with the business of living it. A new exodus from religion to the kingdom of glory. Now, accomplishing this goal is not all on me. I'll try my best for my part, but it's going to take your part as well. Need I remind you that good preaching is a two-way street. It requires both faithful proclamation and faithful listening. Reminds me of uh, what a preacher once said. He said after the service, he heard the familiar words, good sermon, pastor, to which he responded, well, we'll see about that. The point is that a sermon is good only insofar as the people who hear it change for the better. To put it another way, the process of preaching isn't complete until what's called for in the Word actually gets lived out in people's lives. That's why every week we started including in, in, our, in our bulletin a section called Living the Text. If no one is actually practicing what is preached, then none of our sermons are any good. So we'll see if this sermon is any good next Saturday when we discover whether God has made any change in us. But for now, we begin by at least opening ourselves up to the possibility of change. We begin by praying for illumination. Let us pray. Lord, we don't understand you or your purposes. In fact, we can't. All of our anxious attempts at religion have been in vain. However, you are not content with our ignorance, but in your love you reveal yourself to us as one full of grace and full of truth. God, you teach us what it means when we say God. So we ask you right now to do it again. Crush our misconceptions, unveil your glory, make known your purposes for us, for the church, and for the world. Do this through your word of revelation. Amen. Hear the good news according to Luke, chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. 
listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him, and it will scarcely leave him alone. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into human hands. But they did not understand the saying. Its meaning was concealed from them so that they could not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is the word of the Lord. O Lord, let these words sink into our ears. Friends, Jesus is leading a new exodus. It is a departure from religion and an arrival into the kingdom of glory. And he wants you to come along. That's what we're exploring today. How you might be wondering, did I get from that amazing scripture text to this title? (laughs) Glad you asked. Our answer is at the top of a mountain, and we must go there to find it. Only Peter, John, and James were originally invited, but through their testimony, we are now invited as well. So up we go, watch your step, and keep your eyes open. As we ascend this mountain, it feels like we've been here before. We're having one of those deja vu moments. Something about this mountain is eerily similar to another mountain. This is just like the mountain Moses climbed after God delivered his people from slavery. What's transpiring here in our text, up this mountain, looks an awful lot like what transpired on Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt. And what happens to Jesus looks a lot like what happened to Moses. In fact, there's Moses right over there. What in the world is he doing there? This is just creepy. Friends, what Luke is doing in our passage for today, what God inspired Luke to make clear to his reader is this. Jesus is leading a new exodus. By bringing into this passage all of these echoes from the first Exodus account, Luke is demonstrating how Jesus is the ultimate deliverer, the new Moses, and he's bringing about a new Exodus in order to form a new humanity. The first Exodus, as you might recall, is a departure from slavery in Egypt and an arrival into the kingdom of God in Canaan. After the Exodus, Moses climbs a mountain and a cloud covered the mountain and the Lord's presence of glory settled on Mount Sinai. Moses entered the cloud 
And when he came down, the skin of his face shone brightly because he had been talking with God. Because of these things, all the Israelites were terrified to come near him. But they were clearly told by God, listen to him. That's the first exodus and the events that transpired on the mountain right after. Then we come to the mountain on which Jesus is transfigured, and it's happening again. Did you see the resonances of this to our text? What God did in Moses' day, Luke wants to make sure we know God is doing again in Jesus. And this time, God is one-upping himself. One-upping is a word, by the way. I double-checked. It's a form of one-up. What we have in the mission of Jesus is another exodus movement, a new exodus. And here are the parallels to prove it. Give you a few seconds to observe these and then catch your breath. Now, just in case you remain to be convinced that our text is really about a new exodus, I submit into evidence verse 31. They appeared in glory, that is Moses and Elijah, and were speaking of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Your translation might read departure, maybe even death, but the Greek word here is exodon, a form of the word exodus. Friends, in case the similarities between the Mount Sinai and the the mountain which Jesus is transfigured were not enough, Luke uses the very word exodus to describe the topic of conversation between Moses and Elijah. Now, a lot happens on the, me- on the mountain, but the content of what's being said between these great Old Testament figures is this, Jesus' exodus, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So the point is this, what God did in Moses' day, God is doing again in Jesus' day, but even better. The first exodus gives way to the new exodus as the most important event in human history. And the leader of this new exodus, well, you can't miss him. He's literally lit up like Vegas. His appearance shines with glory, and his clothes are dazzling white. His head and hair are as white as snow, and his eyes are like a flame of fire. And his voice, his voice is like the sound of many waters. It's Jesus. He's glowing with glory, and he's leading a new exodus. He wants you to come along. But before you sign up, you probably want to know what you're getting yourself into. The first exodus was about what was a departure from slavery in Egypt and an arrival into the kingdom of God in Canaan. So what is this next exodus? Is God going to bring about political freedom once more for God's people? Is God going to set up a theocracy Once more for the church, and God wants you and I to be a part of it? No. Jesus' new exodus did not free first century Jews from Roman occupation, and it won't free us either from living as strangers in a foreign land. For this reason, hope for salvation through politics is always misguided. But Jesus' new exodus will free us from something deeper— Friends, the new exodus that Jesus is leading is a departure from slavery to sin and religion and an arrival into the kingdom of glory in Jesus. The rest of our time 
will be spent unpacking what this means. First, let's talk briefly about this departure from slavery to sin. The new exodus is a departure, an exit from our prison cell called sin. Jesus is accomplishing something in Jerusalem that breaks our chains and opens our cells and lets us run free to the kingdom of glory. I think many of you know what I'm talking about. You may not have heard it, you may not have heard it put in those terms, but you know what I'm talking about. You've read Romans 6, right? Where it says we were once slaves to sin, but through Christ's death and resurrection, we've been set free, and now we walk in newness of life. Through Christ, we exit habitual sin. We make our exodus out of sin's grip, and we walk in newness of life to the kingdom of light. This is a new possibility created by Jesus' exodus. He is our deliverer, the new and better Moses. And this exodus is accomplished at Jerusalem. As Paul, as Paul summarizes in one of his letters, God rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He set us free through him and forgave our sins. In this way, Jesus is leading his new exodus. It's a departure from slavery to sin to his kingdom of glory. He accomplished this for us at Jerusalem. And now, through the Spirit, we go from one degree of glory to the next. We become more like Jesus every day because of this, 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 this realm of exodus. It's a marvelous thing. Now, that's the part we, we know more about. But what about the religion part? Our answer to the question of how is this new exodus a exodus from religion, our answer is found again at the mountaintop. Back to verse 31. This time we emphasize the second part of the verse. They appeared in glory and were speaking of Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Friends, location, location, location. The location at Jerusalem is where we find our answer. Just a bit earlier in the narrative, Jesus told his disciples what was about to happen to him. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and legal experts, and be killed and be raised on the third day. That's the gracious work of Christ that brings about our new exodus. In the first exodus, God sent ten plagues culminating in the death of the Egyptian firstborn, and then a journey through the waters of the Red Sea. In the new exodus, God sends Jesus, culminating in the death of the Father's only Son, a journey through suffering and waters of divine blood. That is how our exodus is accomplished at Jerusalem. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. We've, we've been told this in Luke 8, but now in Luke 9, we overheard the conversation about between Moses and Elijah, and we have new information. All of this, all of this from this text, it will be accomplished at Jerusalem. Now, why Jerusalem? Have you ever thought about that? Why does Jesus' death and resurrection happen at Jerusalem? Is it just, matter of fact, just happens to be that way? I think the answer lies in what this city represents. And what exactly does Jerusalem represent? in the time of Jesus. 
religion. Religion at its finest. In the time of Jesus, Jerusalem represents the best religion has to offer. As we've been reading along Luke, we've already learned that Jerusalem is the religious center of the day. It's where the priests and legal experts are the top dogs. Jerusalem was to the religion of the Jews as Washington is to the politics of America. Jerusalem represents religion. And it's where Jesus experiences his greatest opposition. And according to Luke, it represents one of the most dangerous forms of slavery. Slavery to religion. Jerusalem is a place where religious leaders think highly of themselves while looking down on others who haven't made the cut. Jerusalem is a place focused on who's in and who's out. It's a place deeply concerned with outward appearance and purity. It's where the disease of legalism runs rampant. Obeying the rules of man means obeying the rules of God. That's one of the symptoms of the contagious disease. Jerusalem is a place where the model of a good person has been set in stone by well-paid religious leaders. So follow the moral code, do your religious duty, keep the proper boundaries, stay in line. And if you do all these religious things, God will reward you for it. That's Jerusalem. But we've already seen Jesus break the rules of Jerusalem. We've already seen Jesus crack their moral code and call it fraudulent. We've already seen Jesus go well beyond the proper boundaries. Even last week, allowing a sinful woman to let down her hair and cleanse his feet with her tears. Jesus invites sinners to the feast because the saints of Jerusalem are too proud to admit they're hungry. In summary, Jesus opposes Jerusalem. And God must punish him for it. At least that's the attitude of its leaders. For this reason, the priests and the scribes feel obliged to carry forward what they call God's justice. That's religion in Jerusalem. In all of these interactions between Jesus and Jerusalem, we come to see that religion is the most dangerous form of slavery. The religious one is imprisoned and doesn't even know it because he's dressed up his cell with piety and good works. But here's the thing. Friends, if we're not careful, we who call ourselves Christians can easily become religious. This is especially true for us who have grown up in the church, especially true for religious leaders like myself. We can become like the priests, scribes, elders, and Pharisees of Jesus' day, enslaved to a system of doing good in order to achieve God's reward. Warning us of this danger is a man who knows what he's talking about. He saw firsthand the dangers of churches that were merely religious. Happy to receive the benefits of the state, these churches were co-opted by the Nazi party, all so they could keep on living their cushy, middle-class, religious lives. The man who warns us is Karl Barth. Maybe you've heard of him. Many call him the most important theologian of the 20th century. And he writes this. Religion is unbelief. It is the one great concern of godless man. 
The piety of man is vain blasphemy and the greatest of all the sins that he commits. What Bart means is that religion is fueled by belief in ourselves to carry out our self-identified religious duties. This is truly the worst form of unbelief. It is vain blasphemy. It confuses our agendas for God's agenda. When we follow religion and its purposes, what we're really doing is we're saying we don't believe in God to carry out God's purposes. Instead, we want to control what we mean when we say God's purposes, so they align with ours. And when we do this long enough, over time, like the compromisers of Nazi Germany, we end up controlling what we mean when we say God. In the end, we're left with nothing but a mirror. And it's terrifying. And we cry out to God, and our religion stares us back in the face. And then we realize our religious selves have become the very thing that we worship. It's not God that we love, but we love our religious selves. That's slavery to religion. It's focused on what we do for a God who is never quite satisfied. And we've done a lot, so God owes us one. That's precisely the slave mentality from which Jesus wants to liberate us. Therefore, he marches into our churches and overturns our religious offerings because we thought by them we could be saved. In the same way, he journeys to the center of religion's empire, Jerusalem, and through his death, resurrection, and exaltation, accomplishes the new exodus, an exodus from religion. In religion, we look at ourselves and what we've accomplished. In religion, we secretly admire how we've done what we're supposed to do. And in the most hidden place of our hearts, we declare, I am righteous and holy and therefore saved. But Jesus has come to liberate us from all that. What saves us from religion is revelation. You've heard the expression that Christianity is not about religion, but a relationship, right? How many of you have heard that? Well, I want to fill this out a bit and say that true Christian faith is not about religion, but revelation. Revelation is that loaded word we use to talk about God's self-disclosure. God reveals himself to us. We don't know what we're talking about when we say God. Unless God tells us, unless God shows us who he is. Revelation is God's initiative to make known his character and his divine purposes. Revelation is God's friend request, without which we wouldn't even know God exists. It is God's reaching out and showing up and opening our eyes to divine reality. Revelation is what makes Christianity a relationship and not a religion. And it's what leads us to the kingdom of glory. Look at these comparisons. In religion, we look at ourselves and what we've accomplished. But in the revelation of Jesus, God looks at us and all that we haven't accomplished. God sees the secrets of our hearts and knows what good we've done with wrong motives. 
And after all this, in the deepest place of God's heart, God declares, you are loved and forgiven. And because I say so, you are saved. It's my life for yours. I forgive you. I declare grace upon you. I rejoice over you with singing. I mark you as my own, my beloved. This is not something we have to achieve. God has achieved it for us. And he's accomplished it in his new exodus at Jerusalem. Back to the words of Karl Barth. Please forgive the length of this quote. It's, I just find it all so uh, wonderfully beautiful and true. Let these words wash over you and come back to them later. You're not going to make sense of all of it, but let them wash over you. Bart writes this. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ maintains that our justification and sanctification, our conversion and salvation have been brought about and achieved once and for all in Jesus Christ. And our faith in Jesus Christ consists in our recognizing and admitting and affirming and accepting the fact that everything has actually been done for us once and for all in Jesus Christ. He alone is the word of God that is spoken to us. There is an exchange of status between him and us. His righteousness and holiness are ours. Our sins is his. He is lost for us, and we are for his sake saved. By this exchange, revelation stands or falls. Friends, revelation is what happens at the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus isn't transformed in his inward nature. You see, it's not his inward nature that has changed. Rather, his outward appearance changes in our text in order to better reflect who he really is to others. The glorious Son of God, glowing with holiness, that has been Jesus' nature all along. All along the Gospel of Luke so far, when Jesus is doing all the things that he does, this is his true nature. The Son of God, glorious in power, glowing with holiness. But we couldn't see it. We couldn't use religion to discover it. It had to be revealed to us. God had to open our eyes. All along the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has done some incredible things, and his closest disciples were watching all along, yet they still did not understand his true identity. Not knowing who he really was, they could not even begin to comprehend what discipleship was all about. They're still thinking along the lines of religion. And these are the people, these are the people, Peter, James, and John, these are the people, the leaders God intends to use to further his mission in the world. Just, just a few weeks from now, just a few weeks after Jesus dies, rises, and ascends in glory. It's not looking good for God's plan, but no need to panic. God will make sure they know Jesus as he really is, and God will do the same for us. God will rescue them and us through revelation. God will ensure Jesus is seen in glory, even if he can barely keep awake his drowsy disciples. Did you notice that in, his, in, in, in the passage? It's comforting for me to know that people almost fell asleep when God was preaching too. 
If you weren't laughing, that would probably mean you were sleeping. (laughs) And though these disciples, these drowsy disciples, they won't fully grasp what's happening at the transfiguration until Easter morning, God knows they will eventually get it. (laughs) If you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you know that Peter, James, and John eventually got it, didn't they? James writes a letter on becoming doers of the word, certainly with Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain mind. John composes a grand gospel of Jesus as the eternal word made flesh. And Peter, Peter writes two letters, one in which he reflects back on this very experience in our text. Peter writes this. Would you say the words with me in bold? He says, We didn't repeat crafty myths when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Quite the contrary. We witnessed his majesty with our own eyes. He received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from that magnificent glory, saying, This is my dearly loved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. In addition, we have a most reliable prophetic word, and you would do well to pay attention to it, just as you would to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Friends, that's Peter all grown up and mature. Those are beautiful words, aren't they? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Where did Peter learn to write like that? Friends, that's Peter, who has been liberated from religion and led by Jesus into the kingdom of glory. But it didn't happen all at once. The Exodus hike from religion to the kingdom, it took time for Peter, and it will take time for us as well. From one degree of glory to the next, we are being transformed by the Spirit, one step at a time, and God marks us with grace all along the process. And so how do we do this? How do we live the text for today? How do we follow Jesus in this freedom from religion into the kingdom of glory? Oddly enough, Peter's misguided religious attitude in our text leads to our final point, leads to our application. Did you catch that? Did you catch how Peter is still tangled up in religion on the mountain? Verse 32. As the two men, Moses and Elijah, were about to leave Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good that we're here. We should construct three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he didn't know what he was saying. I like how Joel Green, New Testament scholar, describes the scene. He says, Peter sees the moment slipping away, but tries to preserve it. Peter sees the moment slipping away, but tries to preserve it. Don't we do this too with our religious practices? We catch a glimpse of God's glory, and we try to make it last forever. Finally, finally, we feel God's presence, and so we attempt to bottle it up and manage it. Like Peter, we try to control our feeling close to God. Despite the fact that it is forever and always God's revelation and God's activity that opens our eyes to his presence and glory, we now want to take matters into our own hands. We want to jar up that glorious presence and preserve it and have it on hand whenever we feel like we need it. 
Lord, forgive us from our religion. Peter's hasty words here, he re- it reveals the selfishness we often bring into our spiritual practices. I must confess that after Lily was born, I realized how selfish my morning devotions had become. They were not helping me love others better. They were not fueling me for practical service. They served my own religious interests, making me feel happier and closer to God. We are all in danger of this. In danger of our spiritual practices turning sour from selfishness. We pray in order to get what we want, controlling God's purposes, managing them. We read the Bible so that we can feel smarter than others. We go to church to make us feel happier. We serve the needy to make us feel like a good person. And whenever we experience anything like a spiritual high, this mountaintop experience, we want to remain there forever. Master, it's good that we are here. Let us build three tents. But our spiritual practices, they're not just for us. They are certainly not for the construction of religion. No, they are gifts from the Spirit, revealed to us for the sake of advancing the kingdom of glory. And while we don't have time to get into it now, the, the second story we read today, that's the primary significance of it. In all three gospel accounts, the transfiguration is followed by this story of healing the boy. That's because we must come down from the mountain eventually and help people with real needs. We must come down from our glorious spiritual practices eventually and put the new Exodus mission into practice, liberating the tortured and bringing release to all who are captive, whether that captivity is an unclean spirit or sin or religion. We must come down and join Jesus in his new Exodus movement. Let me be clear, this doesn't mean we abandon spiritual practices or things we tend to associate with religion. Instead, these things become for us the very fuel for our mission. No longer does guilt compel us to do things for God, but gratitude for what amazing grace we've experienced. That's our fuel for serving God. We still pray. We still serve others. We still meditate on scripture. We still sing songs of worship. We partake of the Lord's Supper as we're about to do in a moment. We do other practices that have been passed on to us from the Christian tradition. But the motivation is not religion. The goal is not manufacturing a devotional feeling. The motivation is grace. And the goal is gratitude. We get to do these things, friends. We are freed to love God truly and to love our neighbors as ourselves with sincerity. We have seen Jesus in his glory, and we love him, and we'd love to be more like him. And so we do the things he did and the things he instructed us to do. We pray for more of God's glory, of course. We want to experience God's presence, and this is a good God-implanted desire. But we love God more than the feeling we get when we experience God. We love God, not the experience. And we trust that God is good, and God will share us his gifts on his own terms, as a father who knows what's best for his children. So I encourage you this week to spend some time living the text by reflecting on your spiritual practices. The sermon notes are there 
for you as his guide. This isn't a religious to-do list, but an invitation to life and the kingdom of glory. This seems especially appropriate as we approach the season of Lent, which begins this Ash Wednesday. Well, that's all I've got for us this morning. So how do we do? Jesus is leading a new exodus from religion to the kingdom of glory. Do you understand what this means? Maybe at least a little bit. The first exodus was in Egypt, from where God's people made their exit and walked to the promised land. The new exodus is in Jerusalem, from where we must leave our do-goodism and religious pride and legalism. So let's go. Let's go get on with the business of living it. Christ now bids us come, leave Jerusalem and its captivity to religion, go out into all the nations, cross boundaries, receive grace, experience true gratitude, and let that be the fuel for living in the kingdom of glory. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, you reveal yourself to us in Jesus Christ, and you reveal yourself to us in the word that is written about him. You also reveal yourself in the breaking of the bread. And so we pray, Lord, that even now you would continue your work of freeing us from our slavery to sin and our slavery to religion. Lead us, O Lord, into your kingdom of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.